borders are usually portrayed as things that divide us, but they can also be seen as something that links us together. Thank you for joining me again for this podcast where we go in depth with the authors, artists, intellectuals, activists about their ideas and the things that motivate them. On this podcast, the playwright Octavio Salas, he grew up in El Paso within a mile of the Rio Grande River. He's written a book, Retablos, Stories from a Life Lived Along the Border. He visits Seattle to talk about his book for Town Hall, the Rainier Arts Center, December 4th at 7.30. A retablo, as you'll hear, is a devotional painting, often on tin, votives that depict dangerous or traumatic events that the person survived through divine intervention. These short works, memories embellished into stories, are by turns emotional, funny, tragic, heroic. These are tales that shape the writer. He's an award-winning playwright. His works have been performed at theaters across the country, from L.A. to New York, Yale to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. The long list of plays includes Lydia, June in a Box, Hole in the Sky, Mi Llama Cristina. Solas has left his Bay Area home and moved to Southern Oregon where he's finding new inspiration. What valley are you in? I'm in a valley called uh, Dark Hollow. Dark Hollow. <laughs> I live on Dark Hollow Road, uh-huh. and it's a little valley that's inside the greater valley, which is the Rogue Valley. What brought you up to Medford? Was it the Shakespeare Festival? Yeah, my, my wife was going to retire uh, or be laid off, one of, whichever came first, and she wanted to get out of the law business finally, and... Uh, but it meant we couldn't live in San Francisco because our pension wouldn't be able to even cover the mortgage, not even close. So we knew we had to leave. Um, we sold our house. Uh, we made an investment out here. We bought, bought the property um, in, uh, about eight years ago. She had a five-year plan um, about you know, uh, leaving the Bay Area. Uh, we still had to get our daughter through high school and into college. And I had some obligations to complete, and she had hers as well. She didn't know whether at the end of those five years she was going to end up leaving her job. It happened right on cue. She was very smart. And because she'd supported my career all her life, and I'd never had to hold on a job, um, I could focus on my career as a writer, I felt like I owed her. And I said, wherever you want to move to after San Francisco, I'll follow you. Um, wherever, in any part of the country, even out of the country. Um, and she selected uh, Ashland. She said, I want to live, I want to live out there. Um, and I said, well, you know, I can do that, because that keeps, me, that keeps my foot in the door with uh, the, my, my theater community. Uh, and, uh, and I have a relationship with the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. I'm not on staff. I'm not a playwright in residence. I just have had some works done there before, and I know some people there. And it would be a way to keep my foot in the door. And frankly, as a writer, I can write anywhere um, because the Internet facilitates that. Yeah, sure. Um, and, and I'm, you know, six hours away, six-hour drive from the Bay Area, where my real theater community is, the one that I've cultivated over 25 years. And um, so I said I can do that. Not only that, I'm... A stone's throw away from Portland, uh, and, uh, and not that far from Seattle. I'm closer to Seattle now than I ever was before. Um, even though I've never been professionally produced, up until last year. I should correct that, up until last year. Oh, what happened last year? Because I was looking at that. I was going to start making some uh, bemoaning 
I was going to start bemoaning the fact he hadn't been professionally had, produced in Seattle. No, no. I've had four productions by two separate universities. UW and Cornish have both done two of my works each um, since, like, the 90s. Um, but never have I been done there professionally until uh, Strawberry Theater Workshop did a production of Lydia. I see. And it was tremendous. Uh, I heard it was one of the best shows that was uh, that had been done there since uh, uh, th- that that entire year. It won all kinds of awards. Unfortunately, I couldn't get up there to see it, but uh, I had a I had um, really great people working on that production. I was very very proud of it. It seems and like they you're, were you're proud of it. All the awards, all the awards you've won. It seems like Seattle, which prides itself on being a you know, a, an avant-garde theater community, a theater community that looks ahead, they gotta, they got to step it up with some of your plays. Well, maybe, yeah, I think so. Um, it's the universities that sort of uh, have uh, copped to me, and I uh, some, some relationships with some of the directors and some of the actors uh, have, been, have, con- have continued from that. One of, uh, one of them was Rene Mian, who's uh, an actor that... that um, that was in a play of mine up at UW, and he ended up uh, working at the festival. I brought him up for a production of Gibraltar in uh, 2005, and uh, and he stayed for like five or six years uh, until he until he and his wife moved away back to LA and eventually to Nashville. Um, and then I had uh, Valerie Curtis Newton uh, had produced. Uh, I directed a production of Santos and Santos. That was, the, uh, I think, the very first thing, very first play of mine that was done there at UW. And she's now a, a director of note and, uh, uh, in, in the national scene. I, I think she lives in New York or D.C. or something like that. Um, but she's a fantastic director and did an amazing production of Santos and Santos. She is, a, she is an amazing director. Hey, uh, yeah. you, you know, you so you don't feel at all uh, dislocated. Writers need roots. This whole Retablos is all about roots in a sense. You don't feel at all disconnected from uh, your San Francisco community having hiked it up no. to Redmond? I mean, to, to uh, Rogue River Valley and Ashland and Metro? Um, well, um, I did for a, a bit. I think uh, I, I, I felt a real sense of cultural dislocation and alienation the very first year that I moved up here. Um, I, I thought that it would be easy. I thought the transition would be very gradual and smooth. But it was hard because I went from an entirely urban environment with a community that I knew, a neighborhood that I knew, where I knew the first names of people all along the, the, the little neighborhood that I lived in, as well as everyone in the theater community there. But... Um, but I went from that to an utterly rural uh, lifestyle. Um, I live in the country. I'm raising goats and chickens. Uh, we built a barn. We have a green garden that we're that's producing a lot of our our vegetables and herbs. Um, I, uh, I I I go to my, my neighbors are farmers and ranchers and uh, rodeo riders, <laughs> uh, and it's. Uh, it, it, it was a completely different um, environment than I'd ever lived in. And, uh, and I didn't know that I needed it. 
but I needed it. The, really rural, needed the rural environment? The rural environment. Yeah. You yeah, I really it. needed to get away. I really needed to settle myself in, in, into this. It, it, it skipped it for, prior to my father. Everyone in, on my father's side of the family had lived on a farm and had led an agrarian lifestyle. Everyone on my mother's, uh, on my wife's side, sorry, prior to her father had lived that way. It's jumped a generation. Our parents left that to, to uh, find a more prosperous li- way of life, a, a more, something that would give their families a leg up in, in, in society and culture and in their, in their world. Um, so we both found ourselves kind of needing it, craving it, um, but I didn't know how badly I needed it until like a year later. Then I felt like, boy, I really, I really missed this. Uh, the, the, I, I really felt like I needed that connection to the earth again. Is it shaping? I needed, I needed to. I needed to feel like, 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 uh, like I was, like I was part of a, like, like I'm part of a movement to, to recognize the value of the planet and, and its and its and the earth and the seasons, and uh, its bounty, and its, and its wildlife. You know, um, that area has its share of more conservative politics for Oregon. Are you finding, though, in the rural areas, your ra- ranchers oh, yeah. and rodeo neighbors, uh, oh, yeah. you have common ground? Yeah, oh, definitely. Especially, you know, rodeo riders are, are arch-liberals. <laughs> but so, so we can jump the gun. We can, we can make assumptions. And that's what I'm learning is I'm learning that uh, that that I can't make assumptions up about people. There will be we know that we live in Trump country. We saw we've seen all the all the signs when the election came out. Um, we know that it's conservative country, but there are folks here who are not like that. Who are who are aggressively lead aggressively agrarian lifestyles, but are far more progressive than. Uh, than anyone gives them credit for. So things are changing. I think things are changing. Does it shape in your writing, living in a rural area? Uh, yes, dramatically. Dramatic. But it was shaping... My, my, my writing was changing even before that. I, I had been writing about these... Uh, about about mm, that this middle America, this more uh, rural America... For 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 a couple of years before I made the move, um, ever since I started writing Mother Road, I I did a, my very first reading of Mother Road almost five years ago, and that's a, and and now it's going to receive its world premiere here at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, so I'd already been kind of been been drawn to it, and it was a commission by the Steinbeck the Steinbeck Center in Salinas, Salinas, the salad bowl yeah. of California. And and I'd also been approached by uh, another company in San Francisco to write a piece about strawberries and the strawberry farmers and the and the kind of uh, toxic chemicals that are causing illnesses in, in in the farm workers. So I'd already been drawn that way with that work toward uh, the the ag community, writing about the ag community, and and that was called Alicia's Miracle. Um, I, uh, um, it's a fantastic company that's tied to, um, 
let me see. I have to. I can't, for at the top of my head, remember the name of the company, but I will. Hold on. Uh, it's uh, done a lot of really terrific work since then. Uh, the name of the company is called Tides Theater. And I wrote Alicia's Miracle in collaboration with the Center for Investigative Reporting. Oh, really? How, well, that's yeah, an interesting that was, connection. Really, really interesting. They're set, they're set up in Berkeley. And uh, it's, a, it's a, a center that does long-form investigative journalistic stories. Online. They exist online only. But they'll do the kind of stories that are more than just, you know, simple, like, three sentences, news bites, you know. They do serious journalism uh, that is thoroughly vetted and investigated. Back in 2015, this is even, like, right as I was about to move here, um, I, I, I did this work with Tide's Theater. What the, the Tide's Theater has a, a, a relationship with the Center for Investigative Reporting. They come up with a story... And then Tide Theater goes there, finds out what story they're working on, and then they commission writers to write a play based on that new story. So the stories will change, uh, and and Tide Theater will will find a way to uh, to craft that into a stage play. So as the story comes out, there's a play that sort of uh, reflects it, that provides a kind of refracting mirror for it so that it, it's a way to get the word out on it and to dramatize the issues that types, that the Center for Investigative Reporting uh, is, are, are concerned about. And and Mother Road is, how is it connected to um, the Grapes of Wrath and Tom Joad? Well, the the Steinbeck Center was uh, celebrating the, uh, was, was going to celebrate at the next year's, at the following year's, uh, um, uh, festival, Steinbeck Festival. They do an annual festival every year around April. And I had been invited uh, to um, to that the previous year's festival, and I was there. And in fact, I was there because I had done an adaptation of one of Steinbeck's novels called The Pastors of Heaven. I did it for California Shakespeare Theater. And again, that play is about rural America. It's about uh, a community co- uh, based on Corral de Tierra, which is an area near Salinas that Steinbeck was very keen on, on writing about. And I adapted it for the California Shakespeare Theater in collaboration with Word for Word Theater Company. And, uh, and after it was produced, the Steinbeck Center decided that the following year they would, they would uh, celebrate that novel, The Pastors of Heaven, and do excerpt, perform excerpts of the play as part of it, and I was going to be the guest of honor and speak. Well, I was, I did, we did all that. It was fantastic. I attended the festival. But I overheard them talking about this project they had for the following year, and it was to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the publication of The Grapes of Wrath. And um, their, uh, their our executive director had this, incredible idea of taking a journey along with various selected artists uh, from Salisaw, Oklahoma to Bakersfield, taking the same route that the fictional Joad family took along with all the other Okies in America uh, along Route 66 to California. 
and, and stop along the way with community partners um, like uh, the Oklahoma Museum for History and Science in, uh, in Oklahoma City, the Salazar Library in Salazar, um, University in, in Canyon, Texas, uh, West Texas, I forget to it, the uh, full time. There, there were community partners all along the way, all the way to Bakersfield. And we were going to take, uh, and they were going to take that journey, but they needed to select the artists. Well, I jumped on that and I told uh, the executive director, I'm going. I need this trip. I'd love, I would love to do this journey with you, and I'll write something at the end of it. And so I went with uh, three artists, four members of the, uh, three artists, one of whom was a visual artist, uh, another one who was a, um, um, a, 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 a videographer, filmmaker, and, and his film crew, four, uh, consisting of four, uh, four, four people, uh, four staff members, including the executive director of the Steinbeck Center, and myself. So there was a writer, a filmmaker, a, a video, uh, ex, uh, and a visual artist. That was Patricia Wakida. And uh, the filmmaker was P.J. Palmer. We all of us went in two vehicles, uh, a van and an RV, where the film crew basically had set up their editing studio and everything. And we took a road trip. We flew to Oklahoma City and then drove our vehicles all the way out further east to Salisaw, Oklahoma, where the, where the novel begins. And we took a road trip. It took two and a half, two and a half uh, weeks. That and we great. broke bread. We cooked for each other. We had community partners that set up, that set up uh, work, uh, panels for us to, to participate in. Uh, we, we, we took oral histories from people uh, all along the trip survivors of the Dust Bowl and the Depression uh, to survivors of the, the recession we had just undergone. So there were young people as well as people who were in their 90s and, and even 100 years old that we talked to who, were, uh, who had first-person accounts of their experiences in the Dust Bowl. You know, uh, you know I have read, I have read um, a couple of articles by you where... Though you have won many awards and been many accolades as a Latino playwright, you kind of chafe at that because you, you, as you say, you're a playwright and you're telling stories. Some of them come from the Latino experience. This project, Mother Road, seems to be exactly the point you're making about how you as an artist fit into the larger scheme of things. Is that right? Well, that's that's all I want to be considered. That's how I want to be recruited as, I, I, as as a as a playwright. I think of myself as an American playwright, even though what I'm writing about often is about the Latin American experience in this country as an immigrant. And 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 even though I took this journey and I was selected just because I was a playwright, just because I was a writer, a California writer, um, at the end of it. I had to find my way in, my personal way in, through these stories that, that I received. And it wasn't, in fact, until the very end, at the Wheat Patch Migrant Camp, uh, which is in the novel, by the way. It's, the last, it's one of the last camps that, that the Jode family go to. It's the first 
federally sanctioned migrant camp that was set up for the Okies to provide clean facilities, fair uh, uh, use of, 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 of the facilities and their general store, uh, and provided uh, care, health care, and, and, and protection also from harassment for all the migrant workers that came from, from that part of the country um, as they looked for work, for migrant work. It's still there, except that all the migrant workers there are now Mexican. And I met one young man there who I spoke to um, who told me, I am the new Tom Jode. Really? We are the we are the new Okies. And then when he said that, and he, uh, not only that, but he knew the novel by heart. He could recite passages uh, by heart. He knew it. He's the only person we spoke to who, in fact, had read the novel, had seen the movie, and who knew it intimately because he related to it as, his per- as a personal testimonial about his own life as a migrant worker. So he knew it. And then when he said that, I knew what my project was. I knew what my play was, what I was going to write. You know, so it, even though I was selected just because it was a playwright, I, I ended up writing a play uh, that I think is an American play, but it's about my Latino experience, describing a Latino experience um, uh, 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 as a migrant worker in, in this country. Well, we don't we don't uh, think of Neil Simon as a we think of him as an American playwright. Sometimes people think of him as a Jewish American playwright, but we surely don't think oh he's a European uh, American playwright, right? He is he is identified first as somebody who lives in this country, but it, we don't think of we don't think of August Wilson as an African American playwright. He's a playwright who writes about the African American experience. That's right. Do you find that that you are? Is it changing? I mean, are people getting that message as you as you do your work? Well, you know, sometimes it it, um, it shifts. Sometimes we feel like we need to assert our identity, assert our cultural background when uh, when when it uh, when the political climate begins to vilify, starts to vilify people of color, when they start to vilify brown people. And so in the last two and three, four years, uh, as the border has become a hotspot, as it has become militarized, as people of my, cult, my cultural background are being, have been attacked and demonized, I feel like I have to assert my Mexicanness. In this, so I feel like, like if I have to call myself a Latino writer, to just s- declare that there are Latinos who are writers, then I do so, and I feel like a lot of my colleagues are doing the same thing, and and I feel like that's important to state now, in 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 these times. Well, I like what you wrote at the beginning of Retablos. Um, the push and pull, the friction between the tectonic plates that are Mexico and the U.S. will always create mountains of stress, dislocation, and upheaval among the people who live there. Maybe this is political, after all, but I think it's really a condition of our culture. It's how we live now with these heroes and fallen angels, with these gods and monsters. I mean, it seems like we're living through 
mythic times in some way, at least in the way you're presenting it. Yeah, and and uh, and uh, I, I really I really felt like uh, that was one of the driving things that that, that kind of pushed me in in completing Retablos. I've been quietly working on that uh, book since 2010, Stephen, and uh, and I didn't know what I was doing. I just wrote them because I thought, you know, these retablos, these, these images, these events feel so dreamlike to me. They happened to me 40, 50 years ago. Uh, and e- e- even 55 years ago. And they seem like dreams. And if I don't write them down, I will consign them to dreams. They will only become dreams. Uh, dreams and i had to give them lend them some reality even if they turn even as i turned them into stories i felt that was the only way to kind of validate that they to prove they happened to me um and so i started that and i thought that you know somewhere somehow it was going to come to something but i didn't realize it until uh i think it was 2014 late 2014 um, Oscar Villalona just of a, uh, a literary journal of national note in San Francisco called me and he said, Octavia, do you have any uh, anything you're working on uh, that we can, you know, an excerpt from your one of your plays you're working on that we can publish? And I I said, well, there's nothing I feel like I is ready to show uh, just yet, but I do have these little things I've been working on quietly. I have a couple of these little, like, for lack of a better word, stories. Can I submit some of those? Is it, yeah, send them in. Well, I sent them what I had. I had only, I think, eight or, or ten at the time. And uh, he read them, and he loved them. He says, I'm going to take six of, six of these, um, and they'll, they'll be great. And And then he asked me, do you have some, uh, something you can write at the beginning, like like an introduction to them? Uh, and I went, sure. Uh, I'll think about that. And I, I said, well, I, rather than an introduction, I really would love to write a retablo, another story that sort of helps to introduce them. So I did, and I wrote the one that I called Retablos. Um, and then he, I sent that to him, and he said, oh, I love it. Can you Now can you do something for the end? And I went, oh, well, all right, something to finish it up. I went, all right, so I wrote another one. And uh, that was the one about um, about my, it was called My my Right Foot. It's about um, Oñate, the statue of Juan de Oñate that is at the airport in El Paso, the largest equestrian statue in the world. And um, when when I I sent that to him and he said great this is perfect we'll publish that and it ended up in in the journal but it's at that point that I also realized hey you know what I think I have the beginning chapter and the closing chapter of something that could be a book I just need to fill all these other things in um, and I was thinking about that and 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 then um, Oscar asked me once it, once uh, the issue came out. He said, you know, we do a reading to usher in the issue, to celebrate it. Do, can you and, and this other writer, would you, would, you, would you guys read for us at this thing? And I said, sure. And the reading happened at the poetry room of City Lights Bookstore. 
And it was right before I moved. It was like in February, January or February of 2015. And um, I was in there, and I just said, oh, man, now I can safely leave San Francisco because I have come to Valhalla. I have reached paradise, you know, to read at City Lights Bookstore in these rooms where Allen Ginsberg read Howell, where Jack Kerouac had On the Road published, where Lawrence Ferlinghetti, the founder, who's still around, of this great bookstore has published his own works. I'm surrounded by their books. Um, Diane de Prima's books, the great poet, her books are there, and Waldman. All these wonderful poets uh, are, are all around me. Um, and um, and I said, yeah, okay, I'll read. And it was fantastic. It was really great. I think we had maybe 15 people at the most there, but I didn't care. We were there. I, I was breaking bread with these marvelous writers. Um, but afterwards, Peter Maravellis, who handles the events, he's event coordinator for City Lights, came up to me and he says, you know, these are publishable, like, like for a book. You got more of these? I went, well, yeah, but, you know, I still need a lot more. He says, well, you should talk to our our publisher here. Her name is Elaine Katzenberger. Uh, give me your information. So I give him my information. Two days later, uh, we did the reading on a Saturday. Uh, on a Monday, she called me. And she said, I understand you got some stuff we can talk about. And I talked with her, and she said, okay, well, then just keep writing more of these, and let's see if we can get a book together. Well, over the next uh, year, that year that I said, you know, it's, it was when we moved here, I, I had such a terrible depression. I really felt tremendous cultural alienation and dislocation. I, I thought my career was over as a playwright. I thought I was never going to get any work done, any works produced, or nobody was going to. I thought I was going to fall through the cracks. I thought I thought it was over. And I kept thinking, what am I doing here? I'm not a farmer. What am I doing here? Um, but it's during that time that I had a writer's block. I, I couldn't write my plays. I couldn't do anything like that. But quietly, late at night, I kept working on these retablos, these old memories of mine in El Paso came flooding back to me, and I wrote them down. I wrote them down as if they were dreams that I was, uh, like as if I'd had a dream and I woke up and was writing the dream down. Well, they have, a very, dream -like, all... they have a very dreamlike quality. I mean, they, they feel like, you write that memory is a muse, but they have this dreamlike quality. They feel as much like poetry as they do like short story. Is that what you're searching yeah, for, well, or is that just how it came out? I mean, did you have to craft them at all, or is that the voice that you found? Oh yeah, found? oh definitely, definitely. Well, the thing, the thing that I feel really sort of makes them feel dreamlike is that they're written in the first person, in this character, I guess, who you would think of as a narrator, who is the writer, who's me. But uh, but also they're written in the present tense, so it's like I'm describing. It says if I'm describing a dream that I'm, I'm reliving. I'm. I'm recounting it as it's happening, uh, and that's what gives it a kind of uh, unreality. Um, it's something that I, that I wanted to keep intact. Um, they were all much longer when I wrote them. Um, some oh, of them they were. were. Some of them that were two pages long were first like five to eight pages long, and I com I worked on 
completely trimming them all back to cut them cut them down to their essence to their to their to their nub so that so that the experience would be real would be would be brief but dense dense as a as a poem is dense you don't speed read through a poem because every line has is loaded with so much um, even the space between the lines in a poem is loaded. Uh, uh, are, 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 that space is filled. It's filled with something. Um, and so I, I, I did craft them as if they were poems. Um, I thought of them as prose poems, although you know, I, I, I read prose poems, and uh, I am no Rambo. <laughs> but, uh, but, I, um, but I use that kind of uh, idea to help craft these stories so that they were very, became very, very, very concise. Do you think your playwriting, um, you think your work as a dramatist and a playwright uh, worked towards that? Because those are also things that are in the present tense and have to be oh, ab- succinct. A- absolutely. That's something that is driven into our, into our crafting brain is that if you tell a story in the past tense, it, that means it already happened. And that's one step removed from it being immediate. And in the theater, you want things to feel immediate, that the audience is seeing them unfold as they happen. So uh, even when somebody is telling a story on stage in my plays that happened years ago, they talk about it as if it's happening now. They talk about it in the present tense. And then I do this, and then this happens. Um, so the S is always kind of a present letter in, in, at, the end of, at the end of vowels. Uh, and so, yes, it came. That was very helpful. But also it was very helpful because of my experience, inexperience as a prose writer. Uh, what, what, I res- what, what helped me with that was to write it in a specific voice, a first-person voice of a character. It's not written in that third-person objective voice. It's written in the first-person perspective. From somebody who's talking about who's who's a character, who's experiencing those things. So I am a character in my own sort of memories, in my own stories. You know, like that really. So so they feel like monologues, yeah, like extended monologues. I I felt that that was a very useful tool for me. And they are also the voice of a, of a of an innocent, a young person who is first experiencing this ever. Uh, widening world. Yeah, I think he's really naive and he doesn't understand a lot of things. But uh, so he makes a lot of mistakes. He's, 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 he, he he learns a lot of things uh, by by falling on his face. You know Whether the the, in... the first retablos in the book. Um, so retablos, devotional painting. It's on tin usually or some kind of metal. Um, it, and it encompasses a whole bunch of stuff in one image, right? There's the transgression, there's the thank, the offering of thanks, there's a, the mediation of the divine. Um, so that, that's what a retablos is as a painting. How do you see that in that very first one, that first one which is about how your parents and you, how do you see that as a, a retablos? You know, if it was just like um, one splash across a painting, what's the frame? What's inside that frame? Inside that frame are two people sitting weeping over a, a cage 
of canaries, and and they're bawling, um, and that to me is a sacred image. That it, you know, what it is is it's the the images of two people weeping on their bed, st- sitting there next to each other, weeping by their bed, and lofted over them as if it's a saint, as if it's a as if it's a uh, as if it's a uh, one of the santos, if it's the as if it's the Virgen de Guadalupe, is that cage with the dead canaries? Those are the saintly figures in the in that retablo. That's what's that's what's uh, both the cause and and the saving uh, the savior of their distress is that they I, 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 and and I'm the witness. I'm the one that sees that they are. It, they are broken and they are stricken, but in this, in, in the sobbing, in the joint sobbing that they do, which feels like laughter, I, I see how one of them, how they will both be together till one of them dies, till they die. I, I see that they are going to be that they are going to be at, uh, at at each other's funeral, at one another's funeral, at one another's bedside when. When they pass, uh, so so to me, the, the, those birds uh, are uh, w- were the source of their grief, but it's also the source uh, g- gave a, gave gave me a a, a, a projection, gave me a, 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 an insight into their uh, their love, which will last till they die. And, and what about another one, the one uh, about Consuelo? Who was a ma- one, an actual oh, maid? Right? Yes, she was. She took care of us as we were chi- as when we were children. She took real good care of us. My parents had to work, and in that culture in Mexico, uh, as well as you know, right across the border, there is that sort of tradition of bringing someone in to help, and we're helping her too by by employing her, giving her money, giving her a place to stay, giving her food. She does everything, though. She cleans, she cooks, she takes care of us when we're sick. She she even bathes us. So uh, she's familiar and intimate with all our bodies and all our thoughts and our habits, our daily lives. Um, but when she's by herself, in her private moments, that's when I feel like that's her private domain. Uh, we all knew to leave her alone and to give her her peace to give her her space. She has her own room where she goes and she sits and she prays. She reads her Bible and she prays. She's also kind of a, 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 an image of, of, uh, and, and a reminder of where we come from because she's got this ancient Nahuatl way of, about her, a native Mexican way. Uh, it's in her... It's in her it's, garments, it's in her hands, it's on her face, it's in her entire demeanor and her mien. Um, and, uh, and, and it's good to have that presence in, in, in our house, which feels like a house that could be in anywhere in America. Um, but there's, if I were going to break her down to, to, this, to this retablo image, it would be of her sitting by her bed uh, eating this sunken, moldy apple, as if it's as if it's the body of Christ, as if it's 
as if it's the sacrament. And she's, um, and she's got that, uh, and she's got the Bible on her lap in that. And there's this, it's a, it's a wonderful humanizing notion and a reminding a reminder to me of like how we view the world and what we remember, right? It's like the people who think who that, uh, oh, Jesus was a white man with a long beard and, and, uh, and, and, and those, those, you know, those, those, uh, expressions of Jesus at the same time, like she's holding this, this Bible that's in Spanish, most likely, right? It's a, it's, oh, yes. it's a Bible oh, of yes. her home and her family. But her faith feels like it's the, the faith that predates Christianity. It's a, it's a kind of devotion and it's a kind of piety that feels ageless and timeless that predates colonial Catholicism, that predates modern Christianity. It, it, it feels ancient, ancient and eternal. All right, one more retablos, and one I heard you talk about on Jefferson Public Radio, which is a great radio show and a great interview. People should listen to it because it was really nice. But the one retablos you talked about, which also struck me, was uh, the one you called The Mexican I Needed. Because I have the same Herb Albert album that you have. <laughs> uh, I, I wish I had it. My mom still has it, and she will not part with those. <laughs> uh, she's got. She, we, she had a collection of like eight or nine of them, along with Barbara Streisand albums and um, um, Perry Como. Uh, some of them were 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 uh, handed down from my grandmother, but uh, but my mom was really into Herb Albert. Loved his music collected it, bought those records. and uh, But I think it's because also he was so handsome. He's such a, 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 an icon for, for young women at that time. He's so beautiful, a beautiful man. And growing up, I looked at him and I said, wow, you know, this is... And I thought Herb Alpert was, was an Americanization of a, a Mexican name, that his name was Herbert Alberto or something like that. Um, and he had the Tijuana brass, and he dressed him in those outfits, and he had this tan. Uh, I just thought that that was the ideal Mexican. And then when he played the horn and you heard that music, it was transporting. But the album of uh, Whipped Cream and Other Delights was a kind of introduction to a young boy, to many young boys, of, uh, uh, to, uh, well, for lack of a better word, almost to pornography. Yeah. It was so sexy and alluring, and uh, and um, and it was just a woman covered in whip. It wasn't even whipped cream; it was all shaving cream, and it was she was under the hot lights all the time, so it was always melting. So they had to keep spraying it on her. I did some research on that album cover. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> yeah, the girl was uh, the the model was uh, barely like eighteen, nineteen, or something like that. And she had no idea that it was, she was going to become famous as this, as a, in this image. Um, but but it wasn't just the image; it was it was the content of those albums. To me, they kind of projected a kind of Mexico that was idealized, that seemed uh, that seemed real but distant. It seemed um, idyllic. It was an idyllic uh, idea of Mexico, as corny as it as some of those songs were that were. You know, Latinized like uh, Tijuana Taxi or or uh, Green Green Grass of Home. Uh, 
um, The Lonely Bowl. I mean, there were just so many songs, and some of them were treacly. But, you know, in, in my youth, I didn't understand that. It just it was just a way for me to connect to Mexico in, 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 on my own terms, not through my not through the music that was on the radio, that Mexican music that Consuelo had playing, and my dad always played in the car, but it was through this. And they were my mom's albums, so I could feel like my mom, who kind of understood and, and played Mexican music, also connected to American pop. She had, she had Diana Ross and Supremes. She had Crystal Blue Persuasion. She... She had uh, uh, a lot of the um, Frank Sinatra. She had those albums. My grandmother also loved those. So it was really interesting to see uh, the juxtaposition of music between Herb Alpert and, and Trio Los Panchos. Uh, that was that those albums could that there was room in our house for both that those kinds of music. And, and it, um, you know, it, it brings up a question that I've been debating with some friends a lot, and I just wonder what you think. I mean, as you say, you looked up, you did some research. Herb Albert is Ukrainian and uh, and Romanian extraction, and Jewish, and Jewish. So, yes. um, and yet he was, as you write, the last part of the, the last sentence in the story. To me, he'll always be the Mexican I needed for dreaming, which raises the question about the argument for and against, or how to think about. Cultural appropriation. I mean, was he was he a thief, or was he? I mean, for you, he was not. He was he was a way into something. I mean, how do we think as artists? How do you think about that? Where he fits along that spectrum, and what you think about those kinds of works? Well, sometimes it's it's uh, it, it feels it, you can people can tell when it's a craven attempt to just capitalize on the culture and make some money off of it without really being connected to it. Um, um, I worked on the movie Coco, and, and there was every effort on the filmmaker's part to immerse themselves in the culture, to devise this film as a gift to the Mexican people. Um, even though, of course, it's, it's a private corporation that is there to make money for its investors. It's it's a, it's an enterprise, a money making enterprise. But it didn't. There was nothing about Coco that felt craven, that felt like it, or, or that they were trying to. That felt like they were simply trying to capitalize on the culture and rip it off. Uh, and no one has ever made that that argument. That no one's ever accused um, Pixar of doing that because they did it honestly. And they brought and and that's what and and they brought me on, me and my two other cultural consultants on this were brought on in, to keep them honest, to make sure that that uh, that the culture was represented correctly, in the right way, in the right spirit, and in and in the letter as well, um, all the way down to uh, the merchandising of of toys, all the way down to the merchandising of of the image of the characters on. KFC boxes and Taco Bell or whatever, you know, they just um, they wanted to get it right. Pixar is a, is, is a gave everybody an ex, it's the exemplar for how to do that when you're going to address another culture. Um, but sometimes you can just tell when somebody's not doing that when they're not being honest about it. They're just there to make a quick buck off of it and have no understanding of it. 
there's something about Herb Alpert that, I, to me, felt like it was honest because he stayed true to it. He didn't change until it was over, and then it was over, and then he's, you know, he's he he was out of style, and um, and you know, he changed after that. But I, uh, but he's never turned his back on his Tijuana brass days, and and he was very popular in Mexico. Um, he, he helped popularize a lot of that music for people who didn't have access to it. Yeah, you wrote that. Uh, you wrote that uh, this is a weird time for borders, you know, or this border, anyways. But probably are borders around the country, and yet you think about all the ways borders are bridged. You, you know, Herb Alpert. I was thinking just now about a group called Love from the '60s, which had some great uh, music in it, and and they and like Calexico or like Los Lobos today, right? They are making a new culture, a new sound out of the pieces of of culture that are floating around all across whatever we call a border. Um, do you feel yeah. that you're doing the same thing? I hope I hope so. I, I hope that what we're you know, um that there's there's something that, that that the best way I can I, the best metaphor I can think of for uh, how um one culture can can completely create its own new where, where, where two cultures can completely create a, an entire new new sort of uh, culture is, is are, are the lowriders, the low ride, the, the, those, those cars. Uh-huh. Um, they, they 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 didn't you know. In Mexico has its own culture. They have their own cars. You know, they even have American cars, and they didn't do anything special with them. They just used them. Americans they get the cars and they you know they have their own way of sort of treating the cars, but then. The Chicanos took those cars, those Chevys and Fords, and they tricked them out. They did something completely different with them, with the hydraulics, with all the murals, with the detailing, with the thing, the way they kind of fix them up. It just was, uh, it was was kind of miraculous, the way they kind of changed something that was purely an American thing and turned it into something other. And and uh, but it's but it but it happened in this country. Happened along the borders. It didn't happen in Mexico, and uh, and so the, I think of that as the best metaphor for that. I think Los Lobos is a very good example of that because Los Lobos, they're playing Americana. It's Americana. It is, but it has a flavor that is unmistakable. You just can't get it if you're not Mexican. If you're not if you're not of Mexican descent, it's not gonna. If you're not going to be able to fake it. It just—it comes. It's part of them. It's part of their identity. It's who they are. In the same way that me, you know, it's just like I—I I can never. I will never be able to write like Dave Eggers, because I'm—I'm I'm not white. I'm just not going to be able to do that. And I grew up an Anglophile. I grew up wishing I could be Shakespeare. Wishing I could write like, like. Uh, um, Dickens and uh, all these English writers like like Martin Amis. I wish I, I I read them avidly. I love English lit. I love American literature, but I know I can never write like them. I can only write like myself, and and and, and I am subject to the forces of my culture in invisible ways. You know the subtitle. And, 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 
Go ahead. And sometimes I'm aware of those ways, and I use them. But even when I try, when I'm not trying, it comes out. It's just going to be there. Well, for the best, because, really, right? For individual voices to emerge is always. I mean, that's where art thrives. All those guys, you know, did Martin Amos see himself as? He probably did in some ways see himself as an English writer, but he first saw himself as a writer. Yes, yes. You know, there's a a novel I just read called There, There by Tommy Orange. And he's he's Native American, and he writes about the urban Indian experience in Oakland, California. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the most original novels I've ever read. And it has its own diction, has its own phrasing, it has its own kind of narrative structure that is wholly original. But uh, I don't think he's thinking about being, uh, you know, writing in this original way. He's just writing. But it's given the opportunity, given the proper kind of, edu- you know, the, the, the right kind of education he needs and, and, the, and, the, and the literary tutelage that, that, he's, that, that he received, he found his way. He found his voice. And, and he's been given a shot, and he wrote this novel that I think is actually going uh, to, to really change American letters. You know, we have this, um, we have uh, in modern day academia and other places, this phrase of intersectionality. I'm sure you've heard yeah. it, which is really about yeah. how we are more than any one thing. We are these many things and we intersect yeah. to create our individual identity and all those things matter and they should be yeah. heralded and understood, but they matter. And it's sort of another way of looking at what a border is. A border can be a wall as some people purport it to be, but a border is also where things come together and create something new. Is that how you, is that how you see it? Yes, I, I, I've always seen it that way. Um, I, 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 I have a very love, strange love-hate relationship with that southern border along the Rio Grande because it, it, it has framed so much of my work. I don't think... Uh, if, if we hadn't been for the conflicts that we've had all along that border since I was born and before that, I don't know that I'd be that, that I'd be writing anything that I've written. I don't know that I'd be that I'd uh, have the kind of perspective that I have. Um, but be, but because it's there, I'm here. Because that border is there, I am. Uh, the writer I am. I live on that hyphen. I live right on that hyphen between Mexican and American. And, and, it's, uh, and, and, and it's not... Um, I, I used to think it was a no-man's land. I used to think it was a, a DMZ, a kind of gray zone. But I, I think it's actually a, a place where uh, other, uh, other things... Um, um, land as well. It's a hyphen for other things, not just Mexican American. Like what? It's a hyphen it, it, between male and female, between uh, genders, and 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 between being cisgendered and and gay, uh, between um, uh, political affiliations, between Democrat and Republican. Between 
capitalism and socialism, I, I think it's a very interesting place to land, to be in that in, in that zone, to have a, a, a to, and it's about that intersectionality to be able to look in one direction, then turn in the other, and see, okay, how does that? How does the other side live? Capitalism, socialism, and nationalism and fascism, which is emerging again today. Do your neighbors, who, as you said, you're in Trump country in part, in, in southern Oregon, are your neighbors willing to stand with you on that hyphen? Are you able to make the connections on that hyphen? I think so. I, 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 I don't think that they... Uh, I, I, and I may be naive about this, but I don't think I am. I, I think most of them are, are lovers of their independence. I think they want to be independent. I think they want to have the right to do, grow and, and build and live free and not have uh, the government lording over them all the time. Um, and yet, you know, of course, we need regulations. We need we need our water regulated. We need our lands regulated. We need uh, we need uh, our, our our taxes regulated, or else roads aren't going to get built, lands aren't going to be protected, water isn't going to stay clean, air is not going to stay clean. Um, so you know it's it's a give and take. Um, but you know in the end, in the final analysis, I think a lot of the people that are here in this neck of of Oregon, anyway just uh, treasure their independence fiercely. Um, and that's the difference. And, and you know, and in that regard, I don't think I'm any different than they are. I don't think any of my colleagues, artists, are different in that way either. They treasure their independence. They want to say what they want to say without anyone saying, you can't say that, you can't write about that, you can't act that, you can't do that. They did a production of Oklahoma at the Oregon Shakespeare last year, conceived by Bill Rausch. And the two main couples were gay, gay and lesbian. And, it, you know, people didn't know what to expect. Were, are, are there going to be protests? Are people not going to come? No, people came, and they loved it. They had a great time. But, you know, Bill has to also take a stand and say, I want to do this. I want to declare my independence and do the work I want to do. And I just thought that was extraordinarily brave and, and uh, affirming of, of his community in an area where there probably aren't as many out, anyway, gay, uh, lesbian people in this country. There's not a large LGBT community. But it's there. And for them, he did this, and it was really beautiful. Well, it's similar um, to what happened with, with uh, Hamilton, right? It's reframed and then sort of reshapes our perception. That's the power of art when it's at its finest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's just, so, you know, um, yeah, the intersectionality is a really interesting place. And, and you know what? To me, it's where it really is going to matter where art is really going to become the agent of this intersectionality more, where it's going to matter the most, are these outposts. 
not Seattle, not San Francisco, not Dallas, Texas, or Los Angeles, or New York. It's in middle America, in rural America. That's where we have to go. That's where we have to be the ambassadors of that. All right, sir. Next time you come to Seattle after this town hall, I hope I'm also seeing this, some of your plays at the Rep or at the Intamon, and uh, we got to get those folks to step up. I know. Well, you know, maybe, maybe. I, I had a friend of mine, K.J. Sanchez, who was involved. She directed a play of mine down in Berkeley uh, recently this last summer, and, and uh, she's got a relationship with some companies up there. So does my friend Julia Carrillo. She's another fine director I've worked with who often directs at Seattle Rep. Um, and so maybe there's something that can happen. I, I think I think Mother Road may be a, a work that would be suited for companies like like that. Uh, I, I you know I, I hope. Are you going to be at the town hall? No, I'm going to be in Hawaii. I hope you don't hold it against me. No, <laughs> you're going to be vacationing in Hawaii. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> my wife had some time off. My wife is in theater. My wife is a, oh, really? is a ward, she's a wardrobe mistress. She's been doing oh. it for 30 years. She works at the Paramount now in Seattle. Oh, excellent. And she also is the in the uh she's the head of their union, the Wardrobe Workers Union. So she Oh, does, really? Yeah, so she's she does great work and she gets a, you know before before the Lion King starts, she has a few weeks off between uh we just had some really interesting shows at the Paramount but then the Lion King starts, and it's three weeks, so she gets a little time off, so we're heading to Hawaii. Oh, that's excellent. That is excellent. Well, Steve, thank you. First of all, thank you for reading the book. You've been citing It was lovely. It was a lovely book. Thank you very much. I, really I, liked I it. didn't know. I had no idea how it would go, but uh, all the reviews, and there have been lots of them, yeah. have been just exuberant. They've well, been really 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 good and i'm very gratified about did you ever read them. did you ever read pilgrim at tinker creek by annie dillard no i i've heard of annie dillard but i don't know that well anyways it was one of my favorite books and when i started reading this 40 years ago 30 years ago when i started 40 years ago when i started reading this book i was again i was in that sort of same zone of the dreamlike quality that confessional quality but also that i felt very grounded in the earth. I mean, we didn't talk about it that much, but just being really grounded in the in the bike rides, the paths, and the and the and the prickly uh, uh, goat heads, and the and the you know and the um, cactuses, and you guys on your bikes riding through that area. I grew. I spent oh, some yeah. time in New Mexico, so I know that that land and that kind oh, of yeah. land. And I just I don't know. There's something about these stories that were just just wonderful, just really great. So I I am very much appreciate that I. That I got to read it and I got to talk to you about it. It's very cool. Oh, well, me too. Me too, Steve. Thank you very much. All right, Thank good. you. You know who? You know who? Kind of, I feel gave me permission to be able to jump from um, playwriting to prose. Sam Shepard. Really? Yeah, Sam Shepard, uh, because he's done it since well, since the Motel Chronicles. But he's got a book called Day Out of Days that was astonishing to me. I do not know that. I'm looking it up. Day Out of Days. And then he wrote another one that was posthumously released, and he wrote this when he was dying, called The, the One Inside. And 
they're really good. And the one inside is is a little more obtuse because I think he's I think he's in a lot of pain and he's on must be on painkillers and when he's writing it. So it's it's really surreal. But uh, Day Out of Days is quite a special book. It's really beautiful. You know, you mentioned yeah. Maria. I, I'll, I'll let you go, but you mentioned Maria Irene Fornes is one of your um, uh, models, one of the people you respected. And so I have some fr- I have some friends here who put on a few of her plays, and they were they were really close to her. The the penultimate time I saw uh, I, Irene was in Seattle. They had a TCG conference there. I want to say 2004, 2005, somewhere around there. And uh, I, I saw her there, and she wanted to meet with me and wanted to take a walk with me. She was being honored, and they were going to give her a, an award, and uh, she was going to speak at it, but she wanted to talk with me. And so we had a, we had a, a private half-hour com- just chat, taking a walk outside the, the, the campus. Um, I think it's outside. It was outside the the Intamon area, oh. and um, and uh, and I, I knew something was wrong. I knew something was up. Then I knew she was she was uh, fading a little bit. And then I uh, then I saw her about three years ago. I went quietly to visit her at the at the home where she was being taken care of at the at the uh, care facility. And uh, and she didn't even she didn't even know I was there, so I just talked to her, talked to her and and held her hand and uh, and uh, I took a picture of her hands. I didn't want to take a picture of of her because uh, I thought I should respect her in in, in that way. Um, but I did uh, I did I did uh, visit her once and um, and it was uh, it's just. Just me and her, just private and private, and uh, that was that. And next thing I know, I mean, it, I I knew it was coming. I knew she couldn't wouldn't be able to sustain her life much longer. But it sustained it a lot longer than anyone thought. Uh, so um, when she passed, it was it still came as a kind of a shock. Yeah, so. yeah. I got to interview her many years ago. Ah, good. She's she's just marvelous. She was a marvelous lady, a model and a mentor. And um I, I loved her. Yeah. All right, sir, go go take care of your chickens and I'll uh, <laughs> I'll get this ready to <laughs> How go. How did you know? How <laughs> I, did you know? The life of a farmer. <laughs> you have to be <laughs> watching those chickens. Watching out for the foxes um, and getting those eggs. <laughs> hey, I'm gonna send you a picture of, of one of my retablos. Oh, please uh, so you do. Can see so you can see um, what, wh- how they, uh, how they inspired me. One you made, or one that you have collected? Uh, one that I collected. Oh, great, great! I, I've got, I've got a number of them. Okay. All right. Take sir. care. Thanks a lot. All right. Very Bye-bye, great Steve. talking to you. Bye bye. Oh, my pleasure, sir. Bye bye. Octavio Salas is author of Retablos: Stories from a Life Lived Along the Border. Came to Seattle talk at Town Hall, the Rainier Arts Center, December 4th at 7.30. I hope you enjoy these conversations. If you do, go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review, won't you? Let other people know about these interviews. It's the best way I know to spread the word. Thank you for listening. We'll have a whole new season from Town Hall of conversations on our other podcast, In the Moment, and the lengthier versions of these same interviews and more at this podcast at length. 
with Steve Scher. <laughs>